What is up, Bitcoiners? It's your boy CK, sitting here with Ansel Linder. We literally hey. just wrapped up with Nick Batia. This was an absolutely fantastic conversation, and we learned a ton. You know, Nick is so, so knowledgeable about both Bitcoin as well as the current financial system, and he really lays it out in his new book. We go into detail. Before we get into it, though, let's talk about our sponsor. It's Blockstacks, Stacks 2.0. They are trying to build out layers on top of Bitcoin. They're trying to do it with a blockchain, the S, the Stacks 2 blockchain. Uh, it is a proof of transfer blockchain that uses Bitcoin as its nomenclature, as its denominator, as the way that they value money. And when you stake STX tokens in order to back up the security of the Stacks 2 blockchain, you get paid out in SAS. You get paid out in Bitcoin. They want to bring DeFi functionality, trustless application functionality to Bitcoin with a blockchain. And again, you can be a part of it, earn Bitcoin, support the Bitcoin ecosystem. Go to Stacks2.com. That is S-T-A-C-K-2, the number two, dot com. Check them out and learn more. All right, Ansel. I mean, what was your, I guess, before we get into the show, you know, why don't you kind of give your uh, your uh, impression of the conversation? Yeah, Nick is uh, one of these deep thinkers in the space, and uh, he hit the scene several years ago with time value of Bitcoin, talking about Lightning Network and fees that you can um, earn, like pretty much risk-free returns on Lightning Network. And that, to me, that was mind-blowing. And now he's here with Layered Money, this new book, and he has, I mean, just kind of opened up uh, one of my big interests, economic history, economic evolution, or monetary evolution, and he ties this all together in this book. So it's a real good interview, and I've been wanting to talk to him for a long time, so uh, it was great. Fun fact, uh, Ansel here has been a huge inspiration and uh, guiding force for both me and Nick. And Nick gives Ansel a nice shout out. Uh, but you guys, if you haven't checked out BTC and Markets, uh, Ansel has been putting out fantastic Bitcoin only content for a very long time. And, you know, we are honored to have him here as a co-host of FedWatch and uh, thankful to continue to put out this nuanced information. Yeah. Should we introduce him here? Yeah, let's jump right into the interview with Nick Batia. Okay, wait, you want to do? You want to give? Yeah, a read? I'm just going to read about author from here. Uh, Nick Batia is a financial researcher, CFA charter holder, and adjunct professor of finance at, and business economics at the University of Southern California Marshall School of Business, where he teaches applied finance and fixed income securities. Uh, previously, Nick worked as a U.S. Treasury's tre- and on a U.S. Treasury's trading desk for a large institutional asset manager and has extensive trading experience in money markets and interest rate futures. And that's, I mean, his experience speaks for itself. So yeah, let's get in the interview. Yeah. All right. Without further ado, let's get into this fantastic podcast with Nick Batia. All right, Nick. So you have a history as a Treasury trader. And to me, that's a fascinating world. Um, Can you help us Uh, or introduce us to that and how that helped you understand Bitcoin in general. So I started at my career in the fixed income industry on um, money markets trading desk, and I was trading treasury bills and other uh, short-term fixed income instruments. And in the, in the, in the money market, in the short-term fixed income instrument world, you're really looking at what the fed is doing every day. You're, you know, you're focused in particular on the Fed. Uh, the nuance there is that the rest of the fixed income universe, including treasuries, call it 10-year treasuries or corporate bonds, they're a lot more uh, valued based off of what's happening in the economy uh, and forward-looking, whereas the, the, the front end is focused on what the Fed is doing right now. And so that... And I had always been interested in the Fed and monetary policy, and that's what drove me into a career in the fixed income industry. But once I started trading the front end and looking at the Fed every day, then I started to read a bunch bunch of Wall Street research and understand the plumbing. It's called the plumbing, you know, how the monetary system works behind the scenes. And when I started understanding that, Uh, It really opened my eyes as to um, really, you know, how complex and fragile 
the dollar system is. The introduction of Bitcoin around the time when I started trading the front end was likely a coincidence. I mean, Bitcoin had been uh, coming across the headlines for me for a few years at that point in 2016, but it was never something that I took seriously. And just for some reason, the price in 2016 bubbling back up to get to its all-time highs, just north of $1,000, that really started to catch my attention because, you know, as a trader, I'm looking at the price and saying, it's about to break this level. It's about to break 1,200 or so. And if it breaks 1,200, based on past experience, it can go 50x, you know, from there and the next move. I started to get interested in Bitcoin because of the price. Then I fell down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. And, you know, shout out to Ansel because his podcast in 2016, 2017 was one of my main um, information sources. And I valued it so much because he had such a Bitcoin only message back then. And, uh, and the Bitcoin shitcoin uh, divide also, he was so staunch on that back then. And so that was foundational for me because when I was falling down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, I had this guy in my ear saying like, just look at the facts look at the Dow, um, you know, look at what's happening, look at the dominance and you, and look at the proof of work and the hash rate. Uh, and, and all of these things tell you that you don't really need to focus on anything else. So that was, that was huge. And of course I used my own discernment and, you know, did my own research and read mastering Bitcoin and did all of that uh, necessary work. Um, but it really was a coincidence that like I was falling down the Bitcoin rabbit hole and doing a deep study of the fed on my day job, you know, at the same time, 2016. Right place at the right time. Yeah. That's, that's amazing to hear, uh, because like I've said in the past, anytime that you can affect somebody like you that has come in and now made huge waves with your time value of Bitcoin and, and then labor, uh, uh, layered money now, uh, that it, it means a lot to me that I've played a very small role in, um, maybe your introduction to the space. I want to keep on this topic of bonds though, uh, or treasuries, because it's such a big market. And there's a lot of people that say it's like mispriced, you know, that there's um, uh, that these, the market doesn't see the fragility of the system. And so that's why interest rates are so low. Can you talk about, uh, do you see bonds or treasuries as being mispriced and uh, is the fed actually in control of that or, uh, can you walk us through the how the interest rate is set like that? The best way to think about the price of treasuries, and you know that that's uh, directly correlates with the interest rate. The best way to think about this is two different assets. There are treasuries, and then there's everything else that's denominated in dollars, and so. When you look at treasuries relative to other things denominated in dollars, that is why the price of the treasuries is so high and the interest rate is so low and that and why treasuries are valued so much. It's because if you don't own treasuries, you own something else that has a, a dollar denomination and that is likely exposure to a bank of some sort, a financial institution of some sort. So there's the great divide. It's exposure to the banking system or exposure to the U.S. government. And when that relative value decision is being made in the investment universe, that's why the rates are so low. It's because when push comes to shove and shit hits the fan, you need treasuries or else you might have paper that's worth zero tomorrow. And what happened in 2007 and 2008 showed us as a monetary system that that truth, that it's either banking paper or treasury paper. And really, if you don't own banking paper, I mean, sorry, if you don't own treasuries, then you're, you're subject to this massive counterparty risk systemic risk, interbank risk, however you want to call it. It's all of these things. 
And so forget Bitcoin, forget gold for a second. Let's just focus on the dollar denomination. And this is why rates are so low. And, you know, every time that rates creep up, people say, oh, it's because treasuries are mispriced. Rates should be much higher because of future inflation. All of these things in theory might be, might have some truth to it, but the price is the actual truth. And the price tells us that the demand for treasuries, no matter the supply, they keep getting issued in greater and greater numbers, yet the rates go lower and lower. So what is that about? That you're flooding the market with supply and the, the prices don't go down, they actually go up? Uh, it, it's a representation of this, you know, this permanently low rate environment that we're in. Um, as to where it's going, I don't see rates going higher materially over the short or, you know, even medium term. Um, and then for over the long term, who's to know, right? The price will tell us if the price starts going down and rates actually start going higher, then it'll catch my attention. And, you know, a, a new trend is established, but we are actually in a 40 year downtrend in us interest rates. This is something I teach to my students at USC Marshall School of Business. Uh, we have to look at the long-term trend and not get fooled into thinking that rates are going higher just because some people think it's mispriced. Well, the world has priced it as such. And, you know, who are we to, uh, you know, to argue that? And you know, like I said, if rates start going higher, then we'll have a new conversation. So um, you just went into quite a bit of depth on how the bond market and the treasury market works and the differences with, uh, you know, the banking system and, you know, kind of this government issued paper. Um, This is a big subject of your newest book, Layered Money. Do you want to jump into the basic premise of Layered Money and uh, kind of just talk about, you know, how you kind of show that these layers build up the current financial system? Yeah, the premise of layered money is to explain that, you know, amidst cash, bank deposits, uh, the banking system, Bitcoin, gold, we have all these different types of money, but the money, the different types of money actually fall into a hierarchy. And what I call, you know, the layers of money. And so the book is meant to show that money is a hierarchy, uh, you know, and this is something that I lifted from uh, Professor Perry Merling. He wrote The Inherent Hierarchy of Money. Go check out that academic paper written in 2012. I've mentioned it several times and I footnote it in the book. It's foundational to the premise. But this money is a hierarchy. And at the top of the hierarchy today in the dollar world is the Federal Reserve, And what do they own? They own U.S. Treasuries. Therefore, U.S. Treasuries are the first layer of money in the dollar world. The Fed is the actor between the first and the second layer of money. What does the Fed issue? The Fed issues cash and reserves to the banking system. And what do you and I have in our deposit, uh, in our checking account? We have bank deposits, and that's a third layer money in this framework because it's issued by a bank that holds Fed reserves as their assets. So on down the layers it goes. And Bitcoin needs to be explained in this layered money framework because Bitcoin is not a, does not have any counterparty risk. It doesn't come from the balance sheet of any financial institution. Therefore, it's a first layer money. Gold is the same thing. And so I tell the story of gold, how it's a first layer money and how promises to pay gold were issued starting centuries ago and how a whole monetary system developed based on that premise of the hierarchy of gold and the future is going to have a hierarchy structure in which Bitcoin is at the top. We see that already in the digital world where Bitcoin is the first layer of money of all digital assets, right? Um, Altcoins are priced in Bitcoin and that's how they have a price. That's how they exist in the first place is because they have an exchange rate in Bitcoin and exchanges issue, you know, uh, exchange balances. And that's a second layer Bitcoin in my framework because it's a promise to pay Bitcoin. It's not real Bitcoin, but it's a promise to pay. And people keep 
Bitcoin on exchanges because they trust the promise to pay. Whether or not that's a smart thing to do long term, it's not really you know what I explore in the book. That's for other people to argue about whether you should have your own custody or not, or which exchanges are safe or not. That's not really what I get into. But I wrote the book in order to explain the monetary system, past, present, and future, through a new terminology that is easier to understand than the current uh, heavily you know, academic vernacular and these fixed income research reports, these plumbing reports at the Fed are, you know, very difficult to understand, it took me years to understand. And this is my bread and butter. And so I really wanted to translate it for the masses and write a book about the monetary system that people could understand. And that also sets up Bitcoin with an 800 year story, which Bitcoin warrants that. Let's really talk, let's really call Bitcoin what it is. It's the best monetary innovation in a thousand years. And so let's tell a thousand year story. Yeah. I love how you frame uh, kind of the evolution into money being a financial system. Uh, so now we have this large financial system that all the layers kind of have to work together and, you know, you can't necessarily expand um, uh, one layer, the, the lowest layer of the pyramid in, in, in if people are rushing to get the, uh, to back up to the top of the pyramid, um, do you see this as an evolution? Cause uh, I read the book last night and into this morning. And um, I just kept thinking that uh, the, it's evolving. Uh, this, this financial system is moving on to the next step with Bitcoin. Do you see it in that way? Yes, it is evolving in a way that Bitcoin becomes the the most neutral consensus money in the world. And it's actually happening before our eyes. It's really fun to watch. Um, uh, there are a lot of people that have seen this coming now for many years because the last wave in 2016, 2017, had the, we had the first glimpses that this wasn't, this was more than just a trend this was a global phenomenon. And so this wave is reinforcing the last one. And we are evolving to this, uh, to where Bitcoin, look, the, the book talks about about 700 years of gold as the center of the financial system. So we're potentially setting up that type of situation going forward with Bitcoin. So absolutely, it's an evolution and uh, Bitcoin changes the, the entire game. And the book really is about officially inserting the invention of Bitcoin into the monetary history. We have to do it now because it's, it's unfolding. And if you just keep calling it like a fad or, or you know, um, even just uh, risky technology, any of these uh, labels for Bitcoin you're totally mis mislabeling it. It's a uh, once in a thousand year monetary innovation and it's too late to ignore that fact. Now we have to, I mean, it, the book, the idea for the book, you know, two, three years ago already. And that was when we were at the bottom, you know, where we're at 3k and we came back to, I was like, started writing the book at 3k again and the, in the pandemic. Uh, so but, you know, here we are today. Well, I love how you are inserting Bitcoin into monetary history with the book and with, you know, your thoughts. Um, that's really what FedWatch is about, is we wanted to have a macro podcast that truly respects what Bitcoin is going to do the world and respects a Bitcoin kind of centered worldview. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the cognitive dissidents um, right now amongst people, uh, you know, the financial elite people in the media? Um, you know, I just watched a, a clip today for C from CNBC. Uh, I forget who was uh, speaking, but effectively saying, you know, Tesla plus Bitcoin is just a huge giant bubble uh, and people are going to lose money. It does seem like, you know, why are people mistaking this massive revolution is just because this revolution doesn't come about, uh, you know, very often, like, you know, where's the issues here? Uh, so here's like one of the simplest ones there. Uh, so I, I'm a behavioral finance student. I think that 
behavioral uh, finance is embedded in price action and that when you're studying a chart, which I do all the time, I'm a chartist, I'm also a behavioralist at the same time. You can't look at a chart and not try to think about the behavior of the buyers and sellers at the same time. You have to, they're, they're one science. It's one art form, this charting and behavioral study. It's really one thing. Um, so one of the bias biases is the price. People don't actually think about Bitcoin in its market cap. And so they don't think about something that, and I now, I can now get to say it's only $800 billion, but something that's only $800 billion, okay, in the context of the latest IIF numbers, which say that we're at about $300 trillion of debt in the world. And we know that from our monetary economics 101, that debt equals money in our system. Every time a loan is issued, money is created. And so 300 trillion in debt means 300 trillion in money out there. So we're looking at something still that's minuscule. And they look at the price going from $1 to 46,000 and their brain breaks and they can't fathom that it's actually small still. Uh, and probably they haven't used the blockchain because if you use the Bitcoin blockchain and you do transactions and you have a, a smartphone wallet and your own wallets and your exchange and you're not sending Bitcoin to yourself and experiencing this you know, technology, forget sending it to people or using it in commerce. Just let's talk about arranging your own storage diversification. If you haven't done that, you're not going to get it yet. You're not going to understand the power. So I used the blockchain 2016 when I started buying Bitcoin, send it, you know, buy it, send it to myself, play with it, use a smartphone app, try that out, try different wallets, write your seeds down. If you haven't done that and also like understanding what is a seed, uh, what are the English words to a seed and how does that correlate to a private seed, which is a number, which correlates to an infinite number of private keys and understanding um, SHA-256 hash algorithm, I promise you, they don't, they haven't done any of that. So their opinion just doesn't matter. And it just, it's like, they're just talking into the wind. Uh, no one's listening to you. Well, unfortunately, people are listening to them. And uh, these same people, you know, they've been missing out on Bitcoin strictly because they've been listening to pundits um, who haven't done the research. Um, I guess in the book itself, and we want to talk about history, but in the book itself, before we get into the history, you kind of talk about uh, the future of Bitcoin tech and you talk about atomic swaps uh, and how you know, in the layers of money moving into the future, trustlessness is going to be a key feature. You're not going to be reliant on today, either trusting the government or the banking system. Like there is no money without trust today. Um, you know, Bitcoin kind of fixes this. Do you want to talk about that? Yes. Yeah, so Bitcoin is a counterparty free money. It doesn't, it doesn't, nobody can default it to you if you own it. So that's one aspect of it. But then this idea of atomic swaps where we can actually swap assets in a trustless way where the trade either happens for both or doesn't happen at all, that it doesn't, you don't need a middleman anymore uh, for, so when asset, when all assets are digital and they are, you know, not only digital, but the technologies that they're built on are compatible with each other to the best of their ability or to some degree, then all assets can be swapped for each other without using an exchange uh, or a middleman to actually custody the assets in the interim. And I talk about this uh, with using the example of Apple shares. If you want to buy Apple shares from somebody, you have to bring dollars to an exchange and a seller has to bring shares to an exchange. And you both have to put your assets in the exchange in order to trade with each other. But atomic swaps eliminate that. Basically, exchange 
exchanges will just become writers of atomic swap programs. And, you know, if you have a good program that is open source and people can test and see if it works or not, then you don't actually have, you, you eliminate this risk of, of counterparties controlling the assets at every step of the way. And so we're a long way from that because right now in the digital realm, there's basically Bitcoin and everything else. There's nothing really in the Bitcoin realm that um, we need the atomic swaps for to you know, build out the financial system. But all that technology is, is developing. Central banks are using atomic swap hash time lock contract technology today. I discussed this in the book. The Bank of Canada and the Monetary Authority of Singapore did a trade with each other in 2019, where they actually are using two different distributed ledger technologies. They do an atomic swap with each other across jurisdictions, having to use no interim uh, exchange or middleman or counterparty in between. Um, So the technology is already live, and we know that Lightning Network enables atomic swaps with Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies that are compatible with it. So atomic swaps are central into this idea that we're, we're leaving behind the idea of counterparty risk, both from uh, a monetary asset standpoint, but also from a trading standpoint. I wanted to jump back into the book and, uh, talk about the monetary history aspect, because that's one of my loves. Uh, you started with the Florin back in 1250 and you built up how, uh, you know, the, the evolution into these different layers. Um, did the layers, do they add different properties? And then do you see uh, the whole as being the money or is the money still the top of the pyramid uh, and it's separate from what the layers are? Do you know, like, can you break it apart and add a diff- add like the layer two to a new money? Uh, so is Bitcoin going to have to replicate the entire system or is it going to be able to plug and play uh, and how has that evolved through history? Yeah, I, I do think that Bitcoin is going to be able to plug and play a little bit uh, with, with just people thinking that it's the base currency of the world now. Um, And so people will be, accepting promises to pay Bitcoin. So let's take just for example, uh, Fidelity investments. They have their cold storage arm now and they're holding balances for customers and they're gonna hold a lot of it, right? So Fidelity holds these, uh, holds Bitcoin and they have uh, their customers have balances. So their customers have second layer Bitcoin in my, in my framework. Uh, it's already there. The pyramid's already there. It's already forming. It's uh, when they want the Bitcoin, they'll, they'll withdraw and they'll go up a layer. And who's the actor between the first and the second layer in this scenario? It's the custodian. And, um, you know, ooh la la, it's the top three custodian on the planet, you know, fidelity in terms of AUM. And so uh, it's, it's really exciting to watch, you know, how that unfolds. Now, to go back to your original question, how did the layers evolve and did they add new features as they went? Absolutely. In the beginning, the second layer was just a promise to pay in the future. Then in Antwerp, a couple centuries later, layer uh, the, the second layer of money, which were built, these bills of exchange and notes, actually started to trade as cash themselves. And that didn't used to exist. When the promises were first made, the promises didn't trade. They were just kept until they were redeemed. Then, you know, the promises actually themselves started to trade. Then the government in the 17th century in Amsterdam and in England, the government came in and monopolized the issuance of second layer money. And therefore they monopolized the control of the monetary system. And that didn't happen until centuries after these layers started to develop. And then we introduced the Fed and all the complexity. We don't have to go into that today, but there's so much complexity in the layers in the Fed system today. And so Bitcoin attempts to simplify some of that away um, by really 
not only making uh, access to the first layer of money pretty easy, but also now the first layer of money is um, it's open also. And you don't, you can just like skip the second layer, the third layer altogether. Um, because today the average American is, does not have any money higher than the second layer besides maybe the twenties in their pocket. Um, their, their money is checking account deposits. That's a third layer money. And they don't, they just don't go any higher in the system, but now they have access to a new first layer of money and it's a new type of freedom and independence that go along with that. And my book concludes with this idea that Bitcoin is a freedom tool. Freedom of currency denomination is something that we should think about every day, just as we think about freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and, uh, and um, other types of natural human rights. Yeah. So on that kind of tip of like Bitcoin is this freedom technology, Bitcoin Magazine actually published a fantastic piece a few weeks ago uh, relating Bitcoin and its invention to the invention of the printing press and how the invention of the printing press ultimately, you know, kind of stripped out the power of the church to control information and to control the Bible and uh, and how that created more human freedoms. Uh, I think that the example comparing it to Bitcoin is is very uh, is very strong and great. Um, and just to kind of put that into an example of. Uh, that is kind of more understandable to the listeners of this podcast. We talk about the Euro dollar system a ton here and how it's almost like this shadow uh, version of the dollar that exists because the layered money system, it's not transparent. It's not clean. It's not, you can't cleanly go from layer two and three all the way back to layer one. There's a lot of, uh, you know, kind of, funny business kind of going on there. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about, you know, the Euro dollar system, how it's developed and again, how Bitcoin kind of offers a solution to, uh, to this, you know, not transparent money. You're muted. My bad guys. So the Euro dollar systems evolution is something that's really fascinating. And it really started because people needed dollars outside of the United States, but just couldn't get them. And so banks in Europe, issued dollars by the stroke of their pen. And so these dollars that the European banks issued at the time, now we call it the Euro dollar system. These Euro dollars were not issued under the purview of the Fed. Um, And they also, while they weren't issued with any regulatory oversight, they traded at par with real dollars. And that was really that was really what broke the system eventually is that people assumed these were the same things euro dollars and dollars and they really you know in the international sense were treated as like instruments but the euro dollar system because it wasn't under any purview it grew exponentially and it grew in complexity so it wasn't just deposits then it became any type of liability that they could issue outside of regulation, where it was basically just whatever they wanted to mark on their books at that, at that time. And if it would, by the way, if the price is par of what you issue, the mark to market value of that is always going to be zero as long as you price it at par. And so what do I mean by that? If like a European bank holds a bunch of Euro dollars and then the euros and then the euro dollar starts to lose its value relative to dollars that bank is going to have to start marking losses every day because of how much how many euro dollars they own as the you know as big as the stock is if the price moves the loss grows and grows and grows but if you never have to market below par you never have to acknowledge how much risk is on your balance sheet and that's what happened is that that built basically over 50 years and it broke in 07. And now you have this whole set of banking liabilities that don't trade at par, but slowly get marked. Their losses slowly get marked every time we have a financial panic, a mini panic. 
And the Fed has to come in and pump money, pump money into the system. And now they pump it to save the euro dollar. They pump it through the ECB and the SNB through Europe. And those two central banks pump it out to their banking systems to paper over this, uh, these losses when you really want to strike the real price of their, their assets. So um, it's a very complex system. And, you know, to tie it back into Bitcoin, Bitcoin brings transparency in its supply and, you know, us being able to all keep uh, a status of the blockchain at, at any time. And that's the opposite of the Euro dollar system. And, it's not the opposite of the U.S. banking system per se, uh, because we do have some insight into the quantity of Fed reserves and even the quantity of U.S. domiciled banking deposits. But that information is quarterly. It's lagging. Um, it's not 100% trustable, uh, you know, trustworthy data. Um, and it's not, uh, it's not trans, it's not 100% transparent at all. So Bitcoin addresses the, you know, the un, I mean, it, it addresses the transparency issue on the euro dollar side where we have none and it, tra- it di- uh, addresses the Fed transparency issue, which we have some, but it's lagging. And um, again, who knows if the commercial banking system itself is reporting all that they should be in terms of dollar issuance. Yeah, the euro dollar system is extremely misunderstood or, or not even considered in most people's discussion of money in general. And you can't, I don't think you can really separate US dollars from euro dollars uh, because a lot of these are the same institutions. You know, they just have subsidiaries uh, in Hong Kong or uh, London or wherever, and they're just kind of swapping these balances across their books and creating deposits and then loans. And then there's the plumbing that's going on with the repo market and and LIBOR and and all these different things. So uh, it's very hard to tease out the differences. Do you think we can even... Um, measure inflation and deflation in this system. This is one of the big topics here on the show. Um, So when people are talking about inflation is inevitable because they're doing all this QE and quote unquote money printing, um, do you think we can measure if this money supply is even increasing? You mentioned 300 trillion in debt. Like how do we measure this? Uh, A very wise man once said to me on the trading desk, everybody's inflation rate is different. And so that's why we can't really measure inflation and deflation. First of all, let's, you know, acknowledge that the word inflation can mean two entirely separate things. It can mean price level, but it can also mean just the increase in monetary supply. That was the classical definition of inflation. So even then you lose everybody. And I did not use the word inflation or deflation once in layered money because of this problem with the word. There's too much argument about it. Nobody even wants to agree on what the word means. Everybody's inflation rate is different. You know, I live in a different city than you do. Things are different, priced differently. Our kids are different ages. Therefore, the things that we're buying are different prices. Um, you know, your preferences are going to dictate your inflation rate. And, you know, and if you want to eat, if you want to eat, um, you know, supermarket food, and get the, the, you know, this idea of shrinkflation where the packaging gets smaller or the ingredients go down in quality and the price stays, is, price stays the same, your inflation rate is going to be different than, than other people's as well, you know? Um, so it's, it's just an argument that I don't, I didn't want to enter uh, because like you said, you guys debate whether we can define it or not as part, as a main theme to your show. And I commend you for that because instead of trying to take a position and be like, we have inflation or we have a deflation, you know, have a coherent argument about what the words mean, you know, discuss the nuances of inflation. You want to talk about education, healthcare and housing and stock prices. There's, there's rampant inflation. Um, there's also rampant deflation as well. And certain statistics show that. And so, the tug of war also is just, it's not something that um, 
I don't think that we, I, I didn't need to, to talk about it to make the point in the book that Bitcoin is, you know, the future of the system. You can just look at the quantity of money that is being issued and not call it inflation and just look at the, you know, as they say, run the numbers. And, you know, going back to Christian's cognitive dissonance question at the beginning, um, wh- they haven't run the numbers, dude. It's, it's clear. Uh, they just haven't. And if they had, they wouldn't have the dissonance because they would, you know, you just do the math. And it's like, you have to compare, um, you have to compare the right numbers and looking at a, a price of 46,000 with no context, they're going to lose the plot. So jumping in here, um, what I've kind of gotten from the deflation inflation debate is kind of like what you said. I don't necessarily have a conclusion around how to label it, um, but it's become evident that the system is broken and everything that the heads of the central banks are doing is to paper over you know, obvious breaks and areas where the system no longer works. And it becomes really evident that even if they are creating currency, the area where there's a massive issue is currency distribution. It's the distribution of stimulus, which is always the issue. And that's kind of why we're seeing the calls for CBDCs and sees the call, see the call from MMT or saying, you know, we need to skip the banking system altogether. Uh, do you have any kind of comments around, um, you know, just the fact that the system itself is not, you know, circulating value throughout it? Uh, it's uh, it's spot on. This is exactly why we're going to see CBDCs rolled out. They might not tell us at the beginning, but it's a distribution issue. It's spot on. It, they can't. They the transmission mechanisms are all broken, so they need a new one, and it's going to be a central bank digital currency that the Fed can push out directly to citizens. It blends monetary and fiscal policy together. They won't be able to do this without some congressional approval, but, and so all of that will take time, but that's the direction where it's going. It has to be that uh, the distribution channels are changed. And when the distribution channels are changed, uh, changed, by the way, the framework of the layers of money in the dollar system completely realign and uh, the banking system loses some prominence in that process. And so I think it will lose prominence in some countries more than it will in others. But you're absolutely right that CBDCs are an attempt to fix the distribution issue, the transmission mechanism issue, uh, which is broken. Well, isn't the transmission mechanism like definitional to the system? So if you like, it's part of the layers and part of the, the, how the layers uh, interact with each other. So if you change the transmission mechanism, are they trying to revamp the entire system right now? Yes. 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 That's what they, when the system is broken, the band-aids can only hold it for that much longer. You need a new, you know, in the layer, you go back to the layers, the fed has issues reserves, they issue cash. They will be issuing a new type of liability that will revamp the system, and that will be the CBDC. And so, you know, I uh, wrote layered money with uh, really a three-year look ahead because CBDCs aren't here today, but they are 100% going to be here in three years. And so I do try to envision and speculate what they'll look like and uh, really define this idea that exactly what you're saying, it's a, it's an attempt to revamp that system by issuing a new kind of second layer money. Yeah, it's a whole new money. Um, do you think that they know that? Like Bitcoiners are high speed. Bitcoiners are savvy. We've been here a while and we've seen this coming. Uh, but the central bankers are still like in all of their releases about CBDC. You'll hear Christine Lagarde or the IMF talk about this. It's all about payments, payments, payments. Uh, do they even understand that what they are what they are uh, offering here is a complete revamp of the system and a new form of money in the form of a CBDC? In my opinion, yes. Um, it's not all of them, but uh, I'll cite 
two different examples of why I know that the answer is yes. The first is one that I reference in the book. It's a speech from 2016 given by a Bank of England uh, monetary policy official. Uh, it was the first time the word central bank digital currencies had ever been used. It was the first time that CBDC had ever become an acronym. And he said that it's an, it's an opportunity to change the way that we transmit monetary policy. That was five years ago. So that was uh, foundational. And I, and I had to cite that in the book to show that they've been thinking about this for a while. And then another are, um, it's really listening to the BIS, the Bank of International Settlements, and the way that they are describing the difference between retail and wholesale CBDCs. They are all over this, and I do uh, cover this in the book. I have to, I had to specify the difference between these two types of CBDC. Is it a retail facing or is it a wholesale facing? And if it is a retail facing, again, it brings up what we talked about. You potentially disrupt the banking system altogether because now if people can have retail Fed coins, what do they need banking deposits for? So they are intimately aware of that nuance that they might be replacing the banking system if they do a retail CBDC. If this is in all of their speeches, and again, like you listen to Lagarde, she has to say certain things, but maybe she's read all of those papers. And I would assume that she has because like now the BIS is publishing CBDC papers all the time. I can't even keep up with them. And frankly, they're, you know, it's a little boring. You know, I, it's more like proof in the pudding. Proof is in the pudding. What are you going to launch? You know, I've, I read the whole ECB, um, you know, report that they put out in October. And they basically said, we're going to have one that we're testing by next year. And so I'd, I'd rather just wait and see, um, you know, what they do. But once they launch it, we'll really have to look and see, like, how does this change the banking system? Um, is it a new way to transmit monetary policy? Is it helicopter? Is it the digital helicopter? That's my prediction. Is it going to be the digital helicopter? In my opinion, absolutely, yes, it will be. So I think Ansel and I have a lot more bearish take on the ability for central banks to actually execute CBDCs. And I actually, this is a criticism I levy against altcoiners who think that, you know, their altcoin in the future is going to be at the point where it overtakes Bitcoin. I always ask them the same thing. When that happens, where is Bitcoin going to be? And I think that that is perfectly up for the CBDC question is we're seeing Tesla buy Bitcoin. We're seeing all of these. In, there's rumors that all of these, you know, companies are are jumping onto the Bitcoin train because of poor monetary policy. And on the flip side, we see these central bankers musing about CBDCs. And we already know they suck at distributing funds and, and distribution of funds and getting people to buy into this stuff, you know, is a, a pain point. My question is, when they actually roll this out, finally, where the hell is Bitcoin going to be? Is every freaking commercial bank going to have adopted Bitcoin at this point? Because that's what the trend looks like. Yeah, it, and and really, yes. I mean, you're talking about a world in which so many more people, institutions have to own Bitcoin just because things are starting to be denominated that way. And that's what we see happening with Elon and Michael Saylor before our eyes today is that the denomination, the mentality is changing. And what, what does the word denomination mean? It comes from the Latin root nomen, which is name. It's how do you name your wealth? How do you name your blood, sweat, and tears? How do you name your labor? And if you name it in Bitcoin, then you bring other people into your universe. And right now we see that people, companies, corporations, countries are naming their blood, sweat, and tears in Bitcoin. And that is a trend that's unstoppable. And it will only continue. Um, and CBDCs being launched. I mean, that just, it, it, it just, it just goes as a reminder as to what era we are trans, uh, we are evolving into. It's the Bitcoin era. 
Hell yeah. I tweeted out today that this is the decade of Bitcoin, and I think we all agree here. Um, Nick, this has been an absolutely fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for coming on. I want to give you an opportunity to give our audience uh, your last word and a plug where people can find you and learn more. Christian, Ansel, I really appreciate you guys having me on. It's great to finally be uh, face-to-face with Ansel after all these years. Um, Christian, uh, always great to be on with you, dude. Uh, So you guys can all find my book. It's called Layered Money from gold and dollars to Bitcoin and central bank digital currencies. Uh, It's on Amazon, Barnes and Noble in the US. Uh, You can Google it. It's on a bunch of uh, places worldwide. Anson's got it. Um, So yeah, the book, uh, it's a a quick read. Um, Like Ansel said, he finished it in a day or two. Um, And I hope you guys will all go check it out. You can find all the links at layeredmoney.com. You can reach out to me directly. Uh, if you want to sign copy, ping me at layeredmoney.com. We can make that happen. Uh, and I'm also on Twitter at time value of BTC. All right. Fantastic. You guys got to follow Nick. You got to read Layered Money. It is uh, next up on my reading list. So uh, I've learned a lot without actually reading the book. So that's the next step for me is I need to take the time to, to sit down with it. But Nick, thanks so much again for coming on. Um, you guys can find me at CK underscore snarks and at Bitcoin Magazine. Ansel? At Ansel Linder and BitcoinandMarkets.com. And Nick, it was a pleasure to speak with you finally. So, uh, yeah, thanks for coming on. Thanks, guys. A quick reminder that all of the content in this episode is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not construe the information as legal, tax, investment, financial, or any other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Podcast Network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell securities or any other financial instruments. Do your own research. Do your own research.